Hello, good morning. Welcome to North Langley. Again, I know you've already been welcomed a couple times, but I'm so glad you're here. And uh, for all of you who are new to Jesus, I always just want to say a quick word to those of you who are brand new to Jesus or you're new to church. I'm just really glad that you're here. And sometimes when we're in church, we can... Uh, you know, experience, hear and see lots of things that are brand new to us. And especially when we dive into the Bible, um, so many new ideas. Um, but I hope that you are drawn to the one Jesus who loves you deeply, is calling you to know his life. And so I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want to welcome everyone to our love series. This is week two. We are on an eight-week journey diving into what Jesus has to say about identity, sexuality, and gender. So we're diving into the tough topics. Thank you for being here. Last week, we kicked off the series by focusing on the sexual shift that has occurred in our secular age and how, two things, how sex became king and attractions became identities. And so if you missed last Sunday, I would just encourage you to hop on our website and give last Sunday a, a listen. The only reason is because throughout these eight weeks, we're going to kind of build uh, upon the previous week. And so... Um, there may be some things today that I'll assume that you're, you're tracking with from, from last week. Um, I hope that your life groups have been going well this last week. I hope the first time you've gathered as a life group to, to look into some of these things um, has been wonderful. I hope that your conversations have been rich and deep and authentic and loving and encouraging to one another. So uh, I'm excited to hear about some of the conversations that will come out of our life groups. Now, today, in part two of our series, we will look at the biblical vision. So this is a bit of vision casting. The biblical vision for marriage, the single life, and the family of Jesus. So marriage, the single life, and the family of Jesus. Now remember, the reason we're doing this series is because all of us who follow Jesus really want to know what Jesus thinks. Here, if you're new to our church, we've been talking a lot about being an apprentice of Jesus, that he would transform our mind and our lives. We often hear ideas and opinions in our secular age about some of these issues, but we're asking the question, what does Jesus think? What does Jesus think about marriage? And what does Jesus think about the single life? We're here because we care about him, and we want him to shape our minds. So, I want to ask this question, are we open? Are we open to what the king, that's Jesus, might say to us? Last week I ended with a quote from John Stott, and I want to start with that quote today. He writes this, if we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. So I believe Jesus is so ready to speak to us because he loves us. We're his children. Remember, that's our identity. He loves us. He, through the Holy Spirit, is delighted to speak to his people. So let's listen in on the teachings of our king. Let's listen to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. So if you could, would you grab your Bible? Let's turn to Matthew 19. And we're going to walk through this passage uh, kind of line by line. And so I would love if you could just keep your Bible open. We're just going to keep going back to the text as we listen to Jesus. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 19, and we'll read verses 1 to 12 together here. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus, we come to you and we would pray that the light of your truth would shine upon us, that you would fill this room with your love. God, I pray that that each one of us would leave today knowing that we are so loved by you, the King. Holy Spirit, would you bring light to our eyes? We recognize that often we walk around blinded by the messages we're hearing all around us, and so we want to see things the way you see them. Lord, I would ask in your mercy that your peace would just settle upon this place as we listen to you. Jesus, you're the greatest you are the greatest of all teachers. We know that your words are filled with life. So come, pour your life into this place. Amen. Okay, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, writes about the importance of the world not having meaning. Aldous Huxley believed that there was a meaninglessness in our world. And this is from his book, Ends and Means. He writes this, those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Listen to that again. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. God and morality interfered with Aldous Huxley's sexual freedom, so God had to go. At least he's honest. None of us enjoy someone saying no to us. How many of you just love it? How many of you just love it when your boss just says no to you, right? It feels great. We love our individualism, we love our freedom. As our own Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau said in, the 19, in 1967, he said there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation, which felt like many of us in Canada was a profound yes to whatever we would choose to do with our own personal life. 
And many of us here would wonder whether Jesus has any right to speak to what I do in the privacy of my own life. But we might be missing something powerful. For some of us, uh, we, we know that early on in the history of the Christian church, there was something called Gnostic Christianity. The idea there was that the only thing good about your life is your soul. Your soul is the only thing that's worthwhile. The body is bad. The world is bad. It's all bad. Matter, all things matter, is bad. And so the idea here is that God saves my soul, which is the only pure thing about myself, and I will one day be with him in the heavens, my soul with him in the heavens. Just so you know, that is not Christianity, just FYI. If that sounds like Christianity to you, you're like, okay, well, that sounds like what I believe. It's actually not Christianity. Christianity believes that matter matters, that bodies matter, that the world matters. We, we read in the book of Genesis about God being the great gardener and caretaker of the world. You and I are invited into a permanent day seven where we become caretakers of creation. When Jesus was raised, he was not just raised a spirit, he was raised in the body because the body is good and God, even though our bodies are broken in this day and age, but God will give us new bodies. We're not floating around souls. God gives us a new body. Bodies are important. So how we live matters. See, Christians are people of new creation. We believe that God is remaking the world and he cares about matter. Matter matters. So we have to be careful the kind of Christianity we have come to believe in. So the point is, is that Jesus cares what I do with my body. This is not just about my soul being saved and that's all that matters and how I live with my body doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. The king desires to show me how to live and for 2,000 years, Christians all over the world have found that time and time again that God's vision of marriage and the single life are both very good. And as the Holy Spirit moves in our room today, my prayer is that we would see the goodness of God's vision for marriage and his vision for the single life. So, number one, what is marriage? What is marriage? Let's look at Jesus' heart for marriage. And we begin by listening to a question that a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees ask Jesus. Verse three, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, notice the phrase any and every reason in verse three. That's really important. And uh, here's what you need to know. There was a popular teaching in Jesus' day on divorce that came from one verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. You can check it out if you'd want. And some popular teachers in Jesus' day claimed that this one verse, Deuteronomy 24, 1, allowed a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, like if your wife burned the family dinner, if she added too much salt to the meal, if suddenly she had wrinkles that were not there on the day that you got married, a man could legitimately and lawfully give his wife a certificate. Here, this is the certificate of divorce. We're done. So you can imagine the women in Jesus' day saying, gee, thanks, thanks for the certificate. You're still a jerk. Thanks for the piece of paper. Because the piece of paper would allow her to remarry. So men were trying to still be righteous before God. They were trying to still be good before God while giving this certificate of divorce. Now, the group that taught this was a group of Pharisees called the Hillelites. They followed a teacher named Rabbi Hillel. 
And you need to know this was the popular teaching on divorce in Jesus' day. Men were leaving women for the most ridiculous reasons. So Jesus, as you can see, thinks it's terrible. This is not God's heart. And so he takes his listeners back in time, back to the Torah, God's word, and he says this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is vision casting. He's reminding his followers and the Pharisees of God's original heart for marriage. And according to Jesus, as Jesus looks back at the book of Genesis, by the way, anytime Jesus is quoting Genesis, this is Genesis plus Jesus equals truth. Like, like this is big, this is a big deal. He's reminding his followers of God's original heart for marriage. And he, and he says this, this is the design. Marriage is covenantal, marriage is permanent, and marriage is shared between a man and a woman. Marriage is covenantal. Notice that he says what God has joined together, God has joined two people together in a covenant of marriage, so it's covenantal. Marriage is permanent. Notice Jesus in the text says, let no one separate them. And marriage is shared between a man and a woman male and female. Remember, Jesus goes back to Genesis here, and he shows how God created male and female, and there is a complementarity here. If you read the book of Genesis early on, when God creates the world, there's all kinds of complementing things. So you have heaven and earth, you have land and sea, you have evening and morning, you have day and night, and you have male and female. We see complementarity all over the place. Listen to N.T. Wright. The coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation of heaven and earth coming together. See, God enjoys complementarity throughout his creation. And so it's so important we see this in Jesus' definition of marriage. Now let's read verse 7 and 9. 7 to 9. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is heavy stuff. Like, and I, I want to say, um, I preached a sermon a few years ago on divorce. And so what I'm going to do... Um, I know maybe many of you might want me to kind of go down that road for a little bit here, but I can't due to time. Um, what we're going to do this week is we're going to post that old sermon that I did on, on divorce uh, on the link to this week's sermon. So if you go to our webpage and you click this week's sermon, um, at the bottom in the, in the little description, there'll be a, a link to an old sermon I did on divorce. But I just want to summarize it really quick. Jesus is setting a very high bar for marriage, but... I believe, as we look at scripture, there are several passages in the Bible that allow, for a certain, that allow for divorce. Now, I believe that abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, neglect and abuse from Exodus 21, and sexual immorality from Matthew 19 are biblical grounds for divorce. But that's all I'm going to say. Feel free to listen to that 
sermon on the website. I know that's unfortunate, but we got to keep moving. Um, But here's what I want us to see. Jesus is setting this high bar for marriage. Now listen to how, okay, so listen to his disciples and how they react. Listen to verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Listen to that. It is better not to marry. This seems like marriage means we are locked in for life. Jesus, are you serious? Who would ever want that? Notice that the disciples have a certain view of marriage. Like, they know that they can just write a little certificate and be done with it. Well, if that's what you mean by marriage, well, that's a lot easier, quote unquote. So let's read verse 10 and 11 together. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Jesus says, listen, the bar for marriage is high. Like if you can't accept it, don't. It requires a lot. It's good, it is a good thing, but it will require everything that you are to pour into this marriage. You cannot simply write these certificates and send these women away. He's he's speaking to to a very male audience here at the moment. He's saying, you gotta catch the high bar that God has for marriage. By the way, just an aside here, for those of us who have embarked on the marriage journey and we're finding that we're in real need of grace, like our church really cares about marriage and we have the marriage course actually starting uh, here in a couple Wednesdays. It starts on January 29th and the course gives practical tools for how to build a strong and healthy marriage. We care about marriage and so you may wanna look into the marriage course. But again, I just wanna show you, Jesus high bar shocked his first listeners, right? I just want us to hear that. Okay, number two. How does Jesus describe the single life? Now, he begins to give a second option. Okay, so there's marriage, but there is another equally beautiful option to live in life, and it's the single life. So listen to him talk about the single life. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Whoa. (laughs) Eunuchs. What are we talking about here? I thought this was about being single, (laughs) right? Not being a eunuch. Okay, a eunuch in Jesus' day was was either a male who had been castrated or a household servant. Right? So that term was used for both. Now, Many male household servants were castrated so that they could be trusted around the wife of the home. Since they were never going to be able to have sex with the matron of the home, they could be trusted while the the male head of the home was off traveling. That servant could be trusted. They're not going to try to sleep with the matron of the home, as it were. But the point is that they're single. Eunuchs don't have a family. And so I want you to listen to Jesus. He says this, for there are eunuchs who were born that way. Just let's slow down. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. This is fascinating. Jesus is aware of the intersex community. People who might be physically incapable 
of sexual relationships because of how they were born. The Intersex Society of North America defines intersex like this. Intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Some intersex people have re reproductive or sexual anatomy that keeps them from having children. This is what Jesus is getting at when he uses the word eunuch. So there are some eunuchs who were born that way. But listen, number two, he says, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Again, this is the household servant, the household servant who has been castrated so that they can be trusted. It's very possible that Daniel and his three friends living in Babylon were made eunuchs by the Babylonians. They could be trusted as servants in the government of Babylon. So Jesus says, yeah, there are those who have been made eunuchs by others. And then he says this. This is huge. He says, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Notice, live like eunuchs. No surgery required here. Jesus is saying, some choose to live celibate and single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They choose to live a beautiful single life for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And what I want us to do is to dive into what does the single life look like as a beautiful, legitimate option for the church. And I would love to invite up my friend, Aaron Thiessen, to chat a little bit about the single life. Can you guys welcome Aaron on stage? Aaron, thank you so much for being here. It's just awesome that you're here. Um, can you give us some context for why you care about the church's stance on singleness? Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Um, is this on? Nope. Should yeah. be? Yes, it's on. Okay, okay there we go. Um, I want to say thanks for letting me share this morning, and I also have some nervousness around getting up here and being the spokesperson for singleness. So let's take that with grace and not decide things about my future. Okay, so um, I definitely care, I care a lot about our understanding about our church getting on the same page about what it means to be single in the body of the church, and that actually started for me um, through friendships with LGBTQ Christians. Um, first at, in when I was in college in Portland and then um, predominantly through my work at Trinity Western University and my relationships with LGBTQ Christians who were thinking about how do I live out the rest of my life especially those who desire to live it out in a traditional Christian sexual ethic and are thinking about singleness for their future and it doesn't look very hopeful and so like them being single in the church, I've also had experiences where singleness is talked about as somewhat of a disease, to put it dramatically. And, and so I was curious, that's the first reason why I was desiring for us as a church to present a way more hopeful 
vision for the future of what it looks like to be single because it seems to be different in what scripture says than what we're really living out in the church. And the second reason is that we all are experiencing singleness at certain points of our lives. And so working with young adults, I'm keenly aware that the length of time spent single has increased from what it was before well into late 20s, 30s. So there's an increased time, but at the same time, many of you sitting here may have um, lost a spouse, been divorced, and are entering into a second time of singleness in your life. Many of you will spend more of your life single than married. And so how do we talk about singleness? How do we participate in the body um, as single people um, in a way that feels hopeful for the future? Um, I think that there has to be a positive vision that we talk about it through scripture, but then practically living it out. Um, I just want to also mention that the whole terminology around the gift of singleness, I think you can probably empathize with me um, when it's kind of seemed, I would read these passages that have to do with singleness, and I'd be so perplexed. I remember being like a preteen at NLCC and thinking like, what does that mean? Like the gift of singleness or the call to singleness. Um, I've recently been reading this book by Sam Albury. I'd highly recommend it, The Seven Myths of Singleness. And he really humorously unpacks how the church has, in the last while, talked about singleness, the gift of it, kind of like a Marvel superpower, that you are endowed, only a select few people are endowed with this superpower, which implies that there's something to overcome, like there's a disastrous way of living as a single person, and you being given the gift or the call of singleness will help you live through that terrible way of living. And so I resonated with that, like, yeah, I feel like that I have, I have, um, received messages about myself being fulfilled through marriage and that do I have the gift of singleness like I don't want it nobody put that on me nobody pray that over me because um, to be fulfilled I would need to be in a marriage so those are things that I think I've seen in my own life have actually contributed to many friends, LGBTQ or not, leaving the church because there's no hopeful vision for how I would live that out for the rest of my life and be part of a community and be, feel like I'm part of a family. I've seen many of my own peers, um, committed Christians, end up leaving the church to pursue romantic relationships outside the church because they can't find them in the church. And therefore... Um, yeah, end up losing their faith because they are in a pursuing romantic relationships is the highest ideal. And I think we need to get radical about how we've also uh, added to that message within the church. Mm -hmm. And so Aaron, thank you. And what are some of the scripture passage, passages that have caused you to think a little bit more deeply about this topic? Yeah. So there's three areas that I think um, mean a lot to me in scripture. The first is 1 Corinthians 7. So it's the longest passage that we have talking about singleness. So I invite, I'm not going to read all of it here, but I invite you to go home and look at it. It's that tough, confusing passage um, from Paul 
where he talks about singleness. And I heard a preacher once, Bruxy Cavey, say that he preaches this when he marries people. So listen, and it'll be funny. Um, he says, if you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I am trying to spare you these problems. Further down, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man or woman has to think about his earthly responsibilities. Where am I? And how to please his wife or husband. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord in ho and holy in body and spirit, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you, and I want you to do whatever will be helpful as you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. I'm reading from the NLT there. I, um, I listened to this as a kid, and, and I was... Um, yeah, I never really, like, I understood that, but I never actually internalized that until it was when I moved back from college and I started working at Trinity Western, and I had a very involved job. I was living on campus, involved in dorms, and I had thought at this point in my life, I was 25, I was like, oh, I'll probably get married at this, in this season of life. It was just kind of like, maybe this is a good time and maybe to meet somebody. And then I was, I started my work at Trinity, and it became so evident to me so quickly that this that passage became real for me that I had undivided attention for the work that I was doing in ministry and it was a profound season that God laid like on my heart that it was okay whether I was married or not it wasn't like rejecting dating but I was I was very much like content and actually like stoked that I was single and I ha was available. Like I would come home late and like go into the dorms and hang out with students till midnight. You can't do that when you're married. And so there was a gift that became real to me, the gift of singleness. But it was actually during that time that um, trusted friends or people in my life also really questioned my singleness. And that was hard for me. So I, w I wanna say this kindly, but to the church, like it hurt when people, um, older people in my life questioned whether or not I had improper work-life balance and if I was not, um, like single women will probably appreciate this too, like you're not really putting yourself out there, what does that mean? So I, and like that was really hard for me because I was like for the first time this became real and that felt God-given and the op and people were questioning that in me, that I wasn't preparing myself for marriage. I don't know how that, what I should have been on Tinder, I don't know. Anyways, so that's important to me. The second part of scripture is the example of Christ. This has become so real to me recently that the example of Christ as a single man who didn't have sex is our example of the ultimate human flourishing. Like, that should be radical to us in our culture telling us that me to be fulfilled would mean that I would need to have sex. But actually, Christ um, did not give us that example, and he is 
fully human and fully God. And so I think that, that should sink in this morning, I hope, with you and be a radical new, new truth, that we don't separate Jesus' humanity and say that he's calling us to something that he didn't live. He actually lived this one out to perfection and was the perfect human. And then I think that we often talk at our church about marriage being a signpost for the future and for the church and the relationship of God to his body. But I also think that we need to start incorporating language of the fact that the gospel is clear that singleness is actually a signpost for the future as well. The eschatological vision of the church, the future of the church, is a church in Matthew 22 says that you won't be married. We won't be given in marriage. We're brothers and sisters experiencing intimacy with Christ in the new heavens. And so that should also be a huge part of why we see the role of the single person, whether it's for your whole life or a season of life as a vision of the future church, that we are united in Christ, that there is intimacy with Christ, and that that is actually what we're, all of us, married or single, are working towards that, and that's beautiful. Yes. That's so good. So are you going to preach about that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Aaron, thank you so much. So uh, let's, let's end this off with just your hope. What's your hope for the church? Yeah, so there's some practical things that I think are so important for us in the church. And that would be that um, Wesley Hill talks about the fact that we, um, he's an author who, if you're interested, you should read about spiritual friendship from him. Um, but he talks about the fact that we are all looking for transcendent human relationships, right? That's something that we all need, married or single. And so how do we do that as the body of Christ? He describes the fact that families, um, we've, we've kind of moved into a stage where the family unit is the ideal way to experience um, my permanent transcendent relationships. And yet for the single person, they actually need to be brought into the wider family of the church, but need to experience regular family life in a real practical sense. So he talks about having families that are porous, that can invite people in. And in my own life, I would, um, I've had this experience with Corey and Sherry's family, the Alstead family, have been a totally porous family to me as a single adult. And they have been, like, I get invited over for family dinners. It's totally, it just kind of came about from me babysitting the kids and then becoming friends with Corey and Sherry. And now, like, it's a family birthday. That's not something you usually invite other people to family birthdays out, but it was Corey's birthday and I get invited to family birthday. Like that's significant for me as a single person. And so, but I, I know that that's actually unusual. And when I'm working or talking with LGBTQ friends who are living out a celibate single life, I actually mourn the fact that one of my best friends in particular, he doesn't have a family that has brought him in the way I have. And he needs that more than I do. And so, I really want to challenge you as families. Let's be porous and let's be generous with our lives, even though it may be uncomfortable. Um, I think our church has huge potential to trust single people in leadership. You don't need to be married with kids in order to be leading in the church. Um, and let's take back the narrative that we need sex to be healthy. Um, let's look for really creative ways when you're 
in church, like, if you're a couple, you don't always have to sit together. One time I was um, sitting with Sherry in church, and then Corey came in later and sat on the other side of me, and naturally I'm like, oh, I should move over so the couple can sit together, and Corey's like, ah, it's fine, I see her all the time. So I was like, I sat there right between them, and I was like, well, I can't be anything but included in this moment. So those things are helpful. There's some, there are some lonely questions, Wesley Hill points out, that single people will ask themselves in different seasons of life. Like, who do I go on vacation with? Who's my emergency contact? Who do I spend Christmas with? Those are practical ways that we in the church can make sure that we are living those lives that include single people in a real way, not just a one time I'll have you over for lunch, but in a real way, asking the real questions about how they're answering those questions in their lives. So let's, I really want to create a place at North Langley where we're um, authentic, that we give LGBTQ Christians the, the chance to share about what's really going on with them, that we're real enough to have those honest conversations, and that we can present the single life in whatever season that may be as a viable, real, awesome option for your life, and it's a huge gift to the church. So, thank you. I'm done. Thank you. That is, a, that is just so well said, and I'm so grateful, Aaron, that uh, I get the opportunity to hear that three more times today, and I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep learning throughout the day, because I think that there's such great truth with what she'd share with us. And one of the things that, as I've been reading about the single life, um, uh, just David Bennett from his book, War of Loves, which I've told you about, and uh, Aaron likes this book too, and, and he actually says for him... He's, he's a gay Christian who lives a celibate singleness. And he shared this verse, and I thought this was powerful. He said this verse means so much to him in the Bible. And listen to this. This is Isaiah 56. This is prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus. God says this, Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. He's, call, he's saying to those of you who are single, who choose to follow me and love me and give your lives to me, I will give you a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Do we believe that as a church? That celibate singleness is a beautiful option. It is not second rate. And I lament the fact that I, in seven years of preaching, have never said that before. Now, a beautiful marriage, beautiful single life, both two beautiful roads that apprentices of Jesus can, can follow and can walk. And I just need to say a few things. A few, these are kind of some interesting points that kind of come out of that. I want to say three things. Number one, I want to say this. This sexual ethic is for all of us. There are two paths, right? Two paths. Covenantal, permanent, heterosexual marriage or celibate singleness. Anything that does not fall into those two categories is not God's heart. In Christian circles, we often hear about gay marriage falling 
outside these two options, but can I ask, what about unbiblical divorces? What about affairs? What about emotional affairs? What about pornography? What about the lust of the heart that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls adultery? What about sex before marriage? To Christians, we need to be consistent with our sexual ethic. Now, a word on sex before marriage. Let's have the sex talk here together as a church. My dad took me out to eat pancakes at a hotel and told me about sex. I think I've told that to you before and I could not finish my pancakes. And he said to me, Matthew, this is better than what my dad did for him in Oklahoma. It's like, my dad took me to watch horses mating and uh, didn't say a word and walked home. And I was like, I think that was a sex talk. So anyway, pancakes was better. So let's talk about sex. Sex before marriage, uh, to get serious here, has become way too common among Christian young couples. I feel like we speak of being a virgin like it's like climbing Mount Everest, right? Like people die up there, like on that virgin mountain, right? You can't breathe, it's like you can't survive, it's a wasteland, which is such a lie. Many of us have done it and it's possible. Waiting to have sex until you're married honors God and it honors our celibate single friends. Let's talk about this for a second. So marriage is the ecosystem for sex. Marriage provides the security for sex to occur. I'm not saying that all marriages are safe places. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in God's design, marriage provides security for sex to happen. Before God, two people become one in all things. Nothing is held back. Everything is given to the relationship. So finances, history, family, like mothers-in-laws and fathers-in-laws, right? Bad days, good days, children, jobs, careers, balding heads, bad breath, debt, romance, beauty, dates, long walks on the beach, pimples and warts. It's all one, right? And then sex is given as a gift for the bonding of two people as they share the rest of their life. So if sex happens outside the context of marriage, it's misplaced. Here's the deal. This has led to so much pain in our world. Sex outside the covenant of marriage is saying oneness when oneness is actually not a reality. At any point, the dating couple or the engaged couple can still break up, right? So we're saying with our body, I'm one with you, but not so sure about whether I really want to share my future with you. I'm not so sure I really want to share my finances with you. I really don't want an exclusive love here. I just want this one flesh gratification. Sex before marriage is saying something with our body that is intrinsically false about our reality. I want to say that again. Sex before marriage is saying something with my body that is intrinsically false about my reality. And it brings so much pain to relationships. Messages are mixed, right? Like, you hear a young couple say, we, we, we did sleep together, we lived together, and now they want to see other people. And it's like, I've just given my whole life to you. Or we slept together last night, we told each other we love each other, but now he's decided to move to another town to get a job, and we're going to date long distance, and it just brings so much pain. It doesn't make sense and it's confusing because you're not fundamentally one and it's not God's plan. 
If you love Jesus, then we have to drop the pride, lay our justification for sex down, and follow him with our whole life. He is asking of us a holy sexuality, and we give him our loves and our attractions, and we just say, Jesus, I trust you with all of this. Remember, as Aaron said, Jesus is the true human being, and he never had sex. He had a beautiful life, and it didn't involve sex. And we have to wrap our minds around that. By the way, you say, well, he was God, so, so that made it easier. That's actually a heresy condemned in 325 at Nicaea. It's called docetism, the idea that Jesus is just you know, he was just a spiritual being. He was God, so he had a power like that. No, he was 100% human. He knows what it's like to live a celibate single life. Okay, so the sexual ethic is for all of us. Number two, we have to speak of celibate singleness with the beauty that it deserves. As you heard from Aaron, we treat singleness as the second-rate plan. You know, are you married? Okay, you're single. Let me pray for you, as she was saying. It's terrible, right? So this is the Jesus. Jesus was single. John the Baptist was single. Paul seemed to be single for a majority of his life. And I had a, a friend tell me, she said, people think celibate singleness is right, but they don't actually think it's good. I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. People in the church feel that way. And we have to remember that celibate singles are not getting any support from the secular age. From our secular age, the only concept of the single life is people sleeping around and free to sleep with whoever they want. There's no celibacy involved in the single life in our secular age. So we have to continue to encourage our brothers and sisters who are living a faithful celibate single life that it, it is, it's a beautiful option. It's not second rate. And we need to fan into flame as, flame, as you heard Aaron say, all those spiritual friendships that we can enjoy here in the church. After all, we are brothers and we're sisters in the family of God. David Bennett in War of Love says this, even in my church, friendship seemed secondary to romantic love. It seemed like everyone had been reading Jane Austen more than the New Testament, or watching 90s rom-coms more than the work of the Spirit. So could we practice beautiful, important, spiritual friendships in the church? And I wonder, and I really, uh, as just chatting with Aaron about all this, I wonder how much we've made the nuclear family an idol in the evangelical church, right? So it's me and Tanya and our three kids, and, and we're, we're incredibly protective. There is, there is an important piece to that, right? Like, we do want to have some great memories as a family. I get it, but, like, we're, in what way does it become an idol and we close ourselves off from relationships and sharing our life, this, this word that Aaron uses, that idea of a porous family, that we're inviting people into the life of the Price family. We get to share in their life, celibate, single friends. You know, are we, are we overprotective? Have we, have we made the nuclear family an idol? Number three, we're called to live as the new family of Jesus. Listen to Jesus and family. In Matthew 12, he writes this, or there's a story about Jesus. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Just pause. Then you're just like, oh no, I got trapped by Jesus again, right? The person, okay. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother 
and my brothers. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus doing? He's creating a new family. New family. He will adopt them into this new family. Right? Celibate singles and those who are married invited in to his new family. This is radical. In a day and an age when Jesus was living, where everything was about the nuclear family, everything was about your last name, everything was about your tribe. And Jesus says, leaving his mom and brothers outside the house, these are my mother and brothers, right here. These who do the will of my Father in heaven. He is building a new family. Look around this room, this is your family. This is your family. All of us have to grapple with the fact that Jesus' vision for marriage and sex and singleness is good. It is so good. Now, you've heard the vision for marriage. You've heard about a celibate singleness. You've heard about sex in the context of marriage. Do you have any pushback? I'm laughing because you obviously do. There's many of us who have pushback. How many of us, as we've been going through today, have been going, yeah, but, yeah. But what about this? What about this scenario? There's a lot of pushback. I'm sure you have some. And so my encouragement is for you to please come back next week. Next week, we dive specifically into the question, would God ever condone gay marriage? I want to end with a story from my life. Uh, there was a guy, I'll call him Daniel, that's not his name. Uh, when I was in high school in Oklahoma, um, I was really close with Daniel. Daniel was about 10, 11 years older than all of our friends. He was like a youth sponsor, like a youth worker. And uh, he volunteered in our youth group, and he was such a great uncle. Uh, he was single, you know, he was, you know, when we were like 17, 18, he was 27, 28 years old. And he was so fun, like he was such a fun uncle to many of us. And, and um, you know, kids in the youth group uh, would tease Daniel about being gay, right? They'd, you know, uh, he would make fun of him, and, uh, but you know, he kind of laughed it off and was an amazing basketball coach. And I got to actually be on, on his teams for a few years. I was actually terrible at basketball, and he would always let me, he was like my plus one on the basketball team. There were always these like amazing basketball players. He's like, okay, Matthew, you join, just join. It's okay, uh, practice with the good players. I'm sure you'll get better. And uh, I was always on the bench and stuff. But anyway, I just loved the fact that Daniel um, cared about us as a whole group. Um, he cared about the youth group, and he spent hours and hours pouring into our lives. Um, after college, and you know, I had moved up here to Canada, and, and he actually moved to Colorado. And I connected with him in the days that I was on Facebook. I'm not on there anymore, but like when, when, when we were on Facebook, I reconnected with him. And, and Daniel um, uh, is not, doesn't, um, doesn't seem to be connected with the church, and he, uh, he's, he is gay, and um, he's living a single life uh, as, a, as a gay man in Colorado. And, and I thought about the pull that he has had away from community, away from the church, and I, and I thought about Daniel and the amazing uncle, uh, 
youth worker, um, friend to so many families that he was. And I was thinking about him, and I was thinking about my church back home in Oklahoma, and I thought, what options did Daniel have? Okay, A, he would come out as gay, and I know my home church, and I know Oklahoma 20 years ago. He was already being teased for being gay. Like, that was not a safe place for Daniel to talk about being gay. And I thought, I thought nobody was talking about a beautiful celibate singleness. Nobody was talking to him about it. That world was just, it was nuclear family, nuclear family. And I wonder if Daniel ever knew the beauty of Isaiah 56, right? This, this idea that you would be given a name better than sons and daughters. Because he was living that in my life. He was such an amazing guy. What my point is, Daniel did not have a hopeful future. The only thing the church community 20 years ago was doing was keeping him silent. Did he have a church that actually believed that Jesus had called him, Daniel, into his family and that a celibate singleness was a beautiful option, not second rate? I don't know. I mean, maybe he heard it. I never heard that growing up. And I wonder how much we pushed him into silence. It makes me sad. And I don't want that to happen here at all. So I want to end with this quote. Jesus, from David Bennett again, Jesus was an unmarried, childless man in a Jewish society of family values and celibate in a Roman society of sexual liberation that mocked singleness. Can, can I just, can we read this slower? <laughs> I just want you to hear that first line again. Jesus was an unmarried, childless man in a Jewish society of family values and celibate in a Roman society of sexual liberation that mocked singleness. In a world of two-sided sexual obsession, Jesus invited others into pure intimacy, modeled loving friendship, and lived in life-giving singleness. Jesus is inviting us into a pure intimacy, North Langley. He loves you. His life and his truth will lead to a pure intimacy. Do you trust him? Intimacy with him, intimacy within his family, the brothers and sisters of this new family that he's creating. He is the one who chose to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He gave up biological children in order to adopt millions, millions and millions of children into his own family. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God and that is what we are. Could we stand together? And as we stand, could you look at the cross? Could you see the cross and could you see Jesus' arms outstretched in welcome? And those arms outstretched are his pierced arms at the cross. This is love. This is love. And you can trust him. I want to end the way we ended last week. Um, if you would, let's pray together. And as we pray, I want to, on the screen... Uh, I have Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So I don't know what the life you're living looks like, but could you, could we close our eyes, could we hold out our hands again if you desire, if you want to, but as followers of Jesus, we hold out our hands, and Jesus, would you see our hands held out before you? We have been crucified with you, and we no longer live, but you live in us. The life we now live in the body, we live by faith in you, the Son of God, who loved us, and you gave yourself for us, and so we say thank you. Thank you for pouring out your love and your life upon us. When we think of marriage and we think of celibate singleness, both roads at times seem difficult, but we see the beauty in both paths. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and strength as we walk these roads for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.